I'm introducing a theme tonight, which as the men on my primary and the women on Amanda's primary 12 can testify has been something that has gripped us all over the summer and a little bit before that. Tonight I'll be able to do some kind of introduction, but I'm so happy to be able to get to this before you all. Rediscovering Jesus. I think it's one of the greatest needs of the hour. I'm going to read two chapters, both from John's Gospel. First of all, John 19, and then John 20. John 19, we come in right in the midst of Jesus' trial and his time with Pilate. And finally, Pilate says, choose between two Jesus. There were two Jesuses there. Barabbas, whose name was Jesus, and Jesus of Nazareth. And it was as if he said, which Jesus do you want? Jesus Barabbas, who was a rogue and a ruffian, or Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ? The contrast couldn't have been more stark. And into this real historical happening we dip right now and it's all done it's a done deal Jesus is going to be crucified John 19 Jesus of Nazareth and from now onwards it's only Jesus of Nazareth I'm talking about all right John 19 verses 1 through 6 then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now we fast forward throughout the agony of the cross, the tension, the disappointment that followed, but now... It's after the resurrection. Jesus has begun to appear to his disciples, converse with them. That first meeting of the primary 12, the original one, well, there was 11 by then. Um, uh, so just, just a little warning here. I can't, I can't resist this. Guys and gals, don't miss your primary meeting because Thomas missed the meeting. We can only speculate why. We know he was a bit of a skeptic, but... Maybe he was discouraged above all the others, but he missed the first meeting and, you know, Jesus appeared. And then there is a second chance. John 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, 
I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Father, we ask you, by your Holy Spirit, would you allow us a fresh journey of discovery and rediscovery that we might freshly understand that Jesus is real. All that he claimed to be, he is. Amen. Over the years, I have witnessed, I'm sure many of you have, maybe not all of these, you might have read about them, various popular interpretations or reinterpretations of Jesus. We had Jesus, the astronaut. We've had Jesus of the sacred mushroom. We've had Jesus, the guru. Jesus, the revolutionary Jewish leader, the Yeshua HaChekavara version. We've had Jesus, the sorcerer. Jesus, the hippie. Yeah, man. Wow, far out. We've had Jesus, the moral teacher, and of course, Jesus, the prophet, merely only a prophet, the Jewish prophet at that. But for us as believers, for the main part, and if today you have not yet encountered Jesus, and for you, it's about, I I need to discover him, let alone rediscover him. For all of us, we might have our own view. And I would suggest to you today, slightly provocatively, that the average believer today in Britain has a slightly over-spiritualized view of Jesus. In one sense, this is not our fault. We did not come to discover him the way the early disciples discovered him. We see this in Thomas, the contrast between Pilate, for his own reasons, saying, behold the man, nothing more than a man, behold the man, And a few pages later, a few days later, we have Thomas, who was just as skeptical as any analyst today, who said, I will not believe until I have physical evidence that I see for myself because I will not believe what I cannot see. And Thomas, being totally turned around and discovering not only that Jesus was the man, but that he is Lord and God. Now for us, we don't come at Jesus that way. We come at Jesus 2,000 years later where we've had 2,000 years of what we may call confessional Christianity. We'll rehearse the facts. It's almost necessary in order to be a believer that Jesus is the Son of God. And by that we mean he's the second person of the Trinity. That Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we have centuries of elaborate thinking and interpretation of how that actually worked. We settle on at least one which is prominent in New Testament thought that Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world. But for that definition and that description, we rely on centuries of theological work and reflection. And so we don't ever question Jesus, the Son of God. As believers, we can echo 
Peter's words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But for them, they were coming at him from this perspective of knowing him as a man and then discovering that he was much, much more as a man. And for many of us, we have to rediscover that not only is he man, human, but he, not only is he divine, but he's also human. And uh, I, I would suggest to you that we need to examine the roots of our faith to see if they are truly rooted in history, the real Jesus, the word became flesh, lived amongst us, and there was nothing outwardly that would distinguish him apart from any other human being. And also the revelation that comes through the scriptures, the revelation founded on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the infallible witness of the Holy Spirit bringing revelation through the apostles. Now I hope that tonight you are not offended at my title, Rediscovering Jesus, because mostly we're used to sermons that would address those outside the professing, believing church to saying, discover him in the first place. But as I've been thinking about this, I'm going to take one strand. If I spent all evening, I, I could spend it on this and I'll maybe come back to some of the things. Let me just take one strand. Here's a question, and I put it out to you. Why does our knowledge of Jesus not produce the same level of radical discipleship that it did in those early believers? There are several reasons for that, I would suggest. But mainly it points to the fact that it is going to be good to seek to encounter him in a new way. Some of the reasons are we live in a superficial age. We live in an age where religious faith, including Christian faith, is being increasingly privatized. In other words, it says you can believe that. You believe that on your own. And it's only a matter of opinion. You have your faith. I have my faith. I have no faith. But we can't really talk about these things because it's not real fact. It's only a matter of opinion. But for us as believers, we should take a lesson from Socrates and apply it to our lives as believers. Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living. I'd like to adopt, adapt that a little bit and say, an unexamined faith is not worth having. So we have to ask ourselves, do we have a kind of theoretical abstract grasp of Jesus, believing him somehow in our minds, a kind of Sunday school faith, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure like feels it's something else. But let the real Jesus grip our hearts and change our lives so that we can become much more in line with the people of the kingdom that God wants us to be today. Now before I go into this, let me lay out for you really how we actually do come to encounter Christ. It is not by intellectualizing, digging around for fossils somewhere in the Middle East. It's not by intellectualizing and so on. It is by a powerful encounter with the living Christ through the Holy Spirit. We can meet Jesus and experience him, the real Jesus, today. I want to put one kind of proof forward for you on this. When you think about the body of Christ today, and uh, here in Kensington Temple, it's the reverse of what I say. All the nations come here. But if you went to all the nations, you will find... People from every different background, culture, and nation talking about Jesus, having met Jesus in the same way that you or I, whatever our background is. And not only is he uh, uh, revealed himself in a way that can be 
seen as one single testimony. We know him, we love him. Whether you go anywhere in the world, it's one of the most amazing parts of my life and ministry, the privilege of being able to travel, to visit people. In fact, in many ways, it's going out to visit all the KT members that have passed through uh, London over the years and wanting to do something back in their own nation. But the privilege is whatever culture or language or background or social standing, whatever their their experience or background is, I can instantly recognize that they know Jesus and love the same Jesus that I know and love. That's a powerful testimony. Then roll that back through through the years of time. So whatever period of history, Back from those early disciples, right the way through all of church history, there's a single testimony. You read their writings and you know that they know and love the same Jesus. So that in itself shows that we have met the real Jesus in many, many ways. However, however, that would not be very convincing to your friends outside who are skeptical. Because many religions could say the same thing. Different philosophies have spread throughout different nations and and people from all different cultures would would speak of similar experiences from their particular perspective. How can we be sure that the Jesus who is real to us is the real Jesus and therefore relevant to all? So I want to put it to you today that we have to not fall into the trap of thinking it's all about how I personally feel, what I experience, what I can say about my life. That's a very popular way of approaching today. Have you ever had it where people say, oh, how wonderful for you. How nice for you. That's the truth for you. That's your truth. My truth is different. But if Jesus is true at all, he's true for all. So how do we get below that a little bit and think about it? As I say tonight is merely introductory. Now, I would like to suggest to you that there's very good, strong reason, apart from wanting to communicate with people who don't yet know Jesus, we need to examine our own faith. Is our faith fully rooted in the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, as well as the Jesus of the Bible? And also, uh, the, the, the God who's revealed himself in Christ and the scriptures tell us all about that. Let me give you a little indication. Have you come across people today or found this tendency in your own life? We're not pointing fingers today. Where the Jesus that you know and love does not match the Jesus of the Bible. Have you ever come across that? So for example, some televangelist will say, the Holy Spirit told me to divorce my wife, that she's not my real partner. Now, and some of those are prominent, gifted, anointed men and women of God. And yet they have come to believe in a Jesus that does not exist because they have somehow become so private in their personal experience of Jesus and and think that he will excuse sin. I know how easy it is in my life to call upon the very Jesus who condemns sin to excuse it in my own life. Will you understand Jesus? You know how hard it is to be in the ministry, Jesus. Surely I don't have to deal with this issue or that, that issue Lord Jesus, you'll make an exception for me. I'm not suggesting that that is the way to go, and I'm not divulging the fact that that's the way I've gone. But I'm saying to you, that tendency is there. And when you read the Jesus of the Bible, and you see he is so sweet and kind to the children, he's so compassionate to the widows and the orphans, but flip over to the end of the book, And read the Jesus of Revelation. He is the fiery, righteous judge of the nations. 
And you read that, you say, I, I've got to make sure that I don't just select the bits that I like and understand that Jesus is bigger and greater and far more glorious than my tiny mind can grasp. Often today, the Jesus that most of us want to gravitate towards is the Jesus who, and this is a wrong conception, is there to make us happy, to solve our problems, giving no thought to his challenging, cross-bearing discipleship message. I'm not being harsh, but I'm just you know, sounding some alarms to hopefully encourage you to go on a journey which I invite us all to go on beginning tonight. I think the heart of this is about, it, it, we've got to focus on facts, not feelings. I don't know if you watch that BBC program, Would I Lie to You? You ever, you ever watch that? No? Okay, well, we need to get out a bit more. All right, all right. So it, it goes like this, this panel of people and, and, and the other panel has to decide what lies the first panel is, is telling and pick up and all that. It's, it's a bit silly, but, but it's quite fun to see if you can tell when people are lying. And in part of the program, they invite a real guest, a real friend, who has a connection to a member of the panel. And each of the panel members has to convince the other members of the opposing panel that, that their version of the story is true. And then when all of this is done, and if they're very clever, you say, I, I do not know who the real person is. And so then along comes the moment of denouement, and the person, the real person, steps forward. I want to suggest to you that we need to examine Jesus again in that light and to say, would the real Jesus step forward? I want you to know I am not in any way decrying spiritual experience. Tonight, by the end of the service, I hope we will have had a real touch from Jesus and, and, uh, and through the Holy Spirit. But we have to be very careful because subjective experiences and subjective feelings can bring us to the point where people are not actually in touch with the real Jesus at all. They can be sure that Jesus told them. The amount of times I've heard people say, the Lord told me, and then listen to the absolute nonsense that comes out of their mouth. Um, uh, um, and let me just balance that by saying I can also give amazing testimonies of when people have said, the Lord told me, and it was the Lord. And I want the genuine, don't you? So how do we get, get to grips with this? First of all, I think we need to make the point that the revelation that, that gives us who Jesus is, is the scripture. It's not going to be my major focus tonight, but, but otherwise the sermon will be far too long. We'll do that another time. But this is where we test everything. This is where we get the information about who Jesus is. In the end, I'll show you that we can trust the Bible. But what I want to begin to discover is this, this real understanding of who Jesus is, that he, that he was an historical figure. He actually lived. Uh, and our faith, the Christian faith, is eminently rooted in history. We claim that God came into the world at a certain point in time. And uh, because of some mistakes that early medieval people made over the dating, he actually born around 4 BC. But the point is, he actually came. He was born in the, under the reign of Caesar Augustus. He was crucified under the reign of Tiberius. And when we get into our Christmas sermons, there's a whole feast of historical information that shows this actually happened. It's an historical event that Jesus actually was crucified and that Jesus actually was raised again from the dead. 
And this is important to us today, and it certainly was important to those early believers. Think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. So he did not directly meet Jesus while Jesus ministered, as far as we know, ministered on the earth. He had a direct revelation post-resurrection, a vision of Jesus, and it transformed his life. But he was very sure that all he'd seen in a vision and his subsequent retreat when he went away seeking God for two years uh, 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 and to come back to Jerusalem after three years to say, listen guys, this is what I've received from God. Does it match your accounts? And he went to the apostles back in Jerusalem. Now, scholars will tell us that this was, uh, was anything from 36 months after the resurrection, right the way to five years or seven years. So historical exactitude here is a little bit, little bit difficult, but, but it's certainly not 100 years later. And we, we have proof that the message of Jesus, the basic message of Jesus, was being preached and spread within months, maybe 36 months, maybe 56 months of the resurrection. So the whole story of the gospel, have a look in 1 Corinthians 15 while we speak, it'll come up on the screen. The whole gospel was, at least in its essential elements, was proclaimed from the very beginning. There is no way that some kind of legend or myth could develop within that time. It was spoken by those who were eyewitnesses and continually preached while eyewitnesses lived. No, the gospel, nobody can doubt it, was intact from the beginning. Nobody can doubt that the apostles and the early proclaimers of the gospels actually believed that what they were preaching was true. It wasn't some fanciful thing. It wasn't some mythological language to say, well, this Jesus was so wonderful, we've got to now express it in other language. No, the gospel record is true. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 9. Now, here's Paul writing to the Corinthians, and uh, he is reminding them of what he preached to them from the beginning. And we also know from the book of Galatians that this message that he preached He checked it out at least twice after 14 years and after three years, after 14 years, he checked it out because whether Paul was kind of nervous thinking, you know, I was not one of the original 12. I must keep making sure that what I'm teaching, what I'm preaching actually accords with those of you apostles who who saw him and heard him and I make sure I've got it right. And this is an early kind of Christian statement of what the faith content was in those early days. This is what they preached. This is what they believed. And we can see all the essential elements of the gospel. And this is what was preached from the very early days. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 through 9. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I received. Now, him having received it, I believe is at least twofold. Number one, he received it directly from Jesus himself, as an apostle carrying 
infallible revelation of what the gospel was, but he also checked it out with those that had first-hand knowledge of the historical facts. That which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the script, in accordance with the scriptures, which means he had to be born and living in this life anyway, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he's recognizing that he wasn't around from the beginning, but he's untimely born, he appeared also to me. I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So we know that within months, arguably, a few years at most, all of this was settled and established. And no person who's got any critical analysis at all would doubt the fact that all of those early apostles universally, James, John, Peter, and Paul, believed the same thing, believed it with all of their heart, and all of their life. They all died. Now nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. You will die for a lie if you think the lie is the truth. But nobody will die for a lie they know. I can just imagine this. Let me um, kind of exaggerate this a little bit. So these guys are going to the death. We are... You are dangerous because you're preaching this Jesus and it's all a lie. We don't want you around. And, and, you know, if I'd been telling a lie at that point, excuse me, I was only kidding. (laughs) It didn't really happen. So they all believed it. They all believed it. Now, there is only one explanation to my mind why they would all believe it so quickly, so universally, so that all of those major witnesses of the gospel, those early gospel preachers, all the strands and threads of different uh, apostles, Peter, James, John, Paul, and all the people they preached to, there's only one explanation as to why they believed it. And that's because the events themselves proved it. Most of all, the resurrection of Jesus. So I'd like us to get back. Let's begin with Jesus, the man. Behold the man. If you saw the Mel Gibson movie, you see this scene very graphically. And here we have a Jesus who has been flogged to within an inch of his life. There are various forms of flogging. This was a form of flogging called scourging, in which the victim was whipped not just with leather strings and rope, but intertwined in those strands were bits of bone and metal. It would rip your skin off and most of your flesh. I witnessed testimonies not of Jesus but of other crucifixions say that you could even see the internal organs 
So Jesus is bloodied from head to foot. His face is swollen from the beating. His head is pierced right into, through the skin, right into the skull with these cruel, nail, cruel um, thorns, blood streaming down his face. And at a certain point, Pilate says, I want them to see this. Pilate is so horrified. Something has happened in Pilate's heart. We do not know. Pilate knew that the crime for which Jesus was being convicted, he was innocent of it. He was crucified for being a revolutionary leader leading a revolt against Rome. And they'd interpreted him to be that kind of Messiah. The Messiah that had appeared, that kind of Messiah 150 years ago, Judas Maccabeus in the intertestamental period, Judas the hammer was a kind of savior, a kind of Messiah of that generation. Who when the Syrian king so cruelly came against the people of God, brought them into terrible subjection, entered the holy temple of Israel, polluted it with pig's blood, as they said, dedicated to the God of Zeus. And this fiery, political, revolutionary, messianic figure by the name of Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus, he came and led a revolt, cleansed the temple. Who does that remind you of? And had some early victories and announced the messianic kingdom has arrived, but the kingdom that they were looking for was an earthly political kingdom. And when Jesus was interrogated by the representative of Rome, he said, my kingdom does not come from this world. Yes, it's coming to this world, but it's coming from above. It is not an earthly political kingdom. That's why my people will not fight. So we are not going about trying to establish a kind of Daesh type kingdom. That's what ISIS is all about, establishing the caliphate, establishing a political kingdom that will enforce religious values upon all within its domain. We are not of that kind of a kingdom. The kingdom that we are of is a kingdom which comes from heaven, not just the kingdom of heaven that stays in heaven and we get the heaven out of here to live with Jesus forever in some heavenly experience. All that is true except one with one uh, difference and that is the kingdom of heaven shall come to this earth and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Christ and of God. Oh yes, it has incredible political overtones. Yes, it will be uh, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this earth and in fact, indeed, more technically accurately, over renewed heavens and a renewed earth, the new creation will have come. So it is coming to this world. That's why you and I are so passionately engaged in the issues that surround us. Not that we are becoming like the world, but we are becoming salt and light in the world. That's why we spend all the time that we do in engaging Amanda's incredibly successful um, um, fashion show. What is a church holding a fashion show for? Well, it's a building where we can, which we can use to engage with our society. 
Let me give you a little testimony also from my thing. That was Amanda's thing, and it was a big thing and a good thing. My thing was this concert over the weekend. And so we employed uh, professional people, lighting, um, and also on stage management. And the lady that came to do stage managing with us, for us, hired in to do it, did an amazing job. And I sat her down and I said, you know, I have a theatrical background. I, if she hadn't picked that up by, by now, it was time for her to realize it. Oh, what did you do? So I told her a little bit of my story, what I did. I wasn't like trying to get a word in for Jesus. I was just trying to do some business, get on with the job. So she said, well, tell me about your call to the ministry then. I mean, I would never meet somebody like that unless I went to some of the parties. And I don't have time. Don't have time to do all that. But here was a lady, and she asked me simple questions. And because of that connection in theater, she was interested. And that's a little story. Something happened to me because of what we did here. But that's your story every day of your life. You are meeting people that would never, under normal circumstances, apart from the Holy Spirit and a lot of skillful utilization of you, Whatever come into a building like this? The cultural gap between the men and women of the world and what we believe in, in, in church life is so big, we have to build bridges. And, the, and we do that not just so that we can win a soul for Jesus, that's vitally important, but that we might begin to see the kingdom of God come. And by that I mean your domain, your home, your community, where you work, can become a tiny bit more like heaven on earth than it was before you showed up. Now we know we're never going to bring the kingdom of God just by doing that. It's going to have to be the intervention of Jesus himself before the full and final kingdom comes when Jesus himself shall return. And we know that that's the big climax of it all. But now we are building for the kingdom. And why would we do that? Because we have met the real Jesus whose whole life and ministry was about the kingdom has come. It is not a political kingdom that is just going to emancipate Jewish people from their Roman overlords. Neither is it just some spiritualized kingdom where Christians can go and live happily ever after. God is involved in every event of this world. And we are called to represent Jesus as people of the kingdom right where we are. And that presupposes a whole set of lifestyle changes. But it begins with us knowing that the Jesus who is real to us is the real Jesus. A real historical figure. These stories are not made up. And it's easy for us to read the Bible over and over again and you're kind of know, over familiar and it just rests in our mind and it does not make the impact. In early days, you needed to know what you were talking about if you went around saying Jesus is risen from the dead. Now everybody virtually has heard of Easter. And say, oh yeah, that's your story. Jesus rose from the dead. But eyewitnesses of his resurrection were so impassioned by the fact, we know him, we see him. I reckon Thomas after this, behold the man, and then he says, my Lord, my God, because he understood the resurrection was real. 
Jesus was real. Everything that Jesus claimed to be, he was. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. But notice how he came to it. I will not believe unless I see. He had to have proof. Now you and I are a little bit similar. We don't have the chance of seeing like Thomas saw. But we have the eyewitness testimony. John's gospel says, listen, there are so many things which are authentic sayings and doings of Jesus which I could have used in building this gospel for you. But I've only selected a few things. In fact, John's gospel, as you know, is constructed around seven signs which indicate and illustrate seven aspects of the ministry of Jesus. So he said, I could have written about so much. And then he says this slightly hyperbolic statement, but we know what he means. He said, if everything was written down, that could be written down, no, there wouldn't be enough room in all the libraries. So he selected stuff and presented it to us as an eyewitness testimony so that he says, I have written these things so that you might believe. Now, I know that very few of us have come to faith. I know I didn't. I know some do. By looking at the evidence as if we might be scientists or investigative journalists and coming to a conclusion. People do that. That happens to people, particularly skeptical people like Thomas. I think of Frank Morrison and his book, Who Moved the Stone? It's quite an old book now, but he was a journalist setting out to disprove the resurrection. Looked at the evidence that I believe. He saw the evidence. Our faith is not believing just in something. Our faith has historical backing to it. It's not that we can go around proving it, but we have good reasons to believe. And I think that the 21st century church has got to go back and retrace the steps of the early disciples and begin to say, who is he? Who is he? Who is he? What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves... Behave him. What kind of teacher is this? With a word. Sorry. Okay, but I enjoyed it. With a word, he casts out demons and even the demons obey him. What is this? Those that came to arrest Jesus, who were sent by the Roman soldiers, arrest him. They came back empty-handed. We forgot our mission. We, 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 nobody ever spoke like this man. They went to arrest Jesus and Jesus arrested them. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did they come to believe? How could John write in his, pro, in his prologue, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. That's Genesis. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. How could he say that? The way Thomas said it, my Lord and my God. And that was months, weeks, or certainly no more than years after the resurrection. How was it that these people had no idea that God was more than simply Father, but He was also Father, Son, and Spirit? No idea that Messiah should suffer and die. No idea of a dying and rising Messiah. No idea that He wasn't coming up to fulfill their political agenda. How was it that those men were convinced and they were not convinced entirely. And when Jesus died, they thought it was all over. The resurrection of Jesus and the appearance of Jesus with eyewitness testimonies. And at the time of Paul's writing, Corinthians says, many of these people are still around. Go and talk to them if you don't believe me. 
Now, I know that we, in this church, do not have a critical analytical faith. Not often. We don't, Sunday by Sunday, say, what is the evidence? Uh, and we, we don't have angst over these things. However, we need to remember that many people out there are just like Thomas. And we also need to remember that the real blessing is not believing because you have seen, but seeing because you have believed. We need to remember that. So we need to know, real historical figure, born in the time of Augustus, was crucified in the time of Tiberius. We need to know that what he said and did was reliably recorded together with the gospel message. Now, I've established a little bit about what the gospel message was. I was speaking to somebody recently who's a Buddhist and great, great friend of mine. And um, I was talking to him like this. He said, oh, well, you know, you should hear such and such a person speaking who is, who is a kind of Christian Buddhist. And um, I said, well, that person is relying on unreliable evidence. That person is going to the Gnostic Gospels of the second century, not going to the real stuff of the first century. In other words, if you start reading what people were speculating about and allowing pagan philosophy to touch them, uh, Gnosticism is almost the new age movement of the day, way beyond the time of Jesus. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, sheer invention, has some authentic sayings of Jesus we can measure against the Gospels. But that, those people believe that the God who created the world is not God Almighty, but who was an evil being. That's what they believe. Now, do you think that's the authentic Jesus, the one who stood in the great tradition of Old Testament prophecy, the one who was the fulfillment of all that Old Testament Hebrew prophecy? Do you think he's going to turn away to false gods? Not at all. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So they're taking the wrong sources. So we go back to the real sources of the Gospels. Let's discover how authentic it is. The book of Acts would written around A.D. 60. It doesn't record Paul's death, A.D. 60. Luke's gospel written before that could not have been written later than A.D. 55. Matthew, no later than A.D. 50. Mark, no later than A.D. 45. So if Jesus died around A.D. 30, how many years is that after the death of Jesus? 15 years. And Mark's gospel is relying on oral testimony of the sayings of Jesus. Those days, you know, to write it down didn't make it any better. For us, somebody says, okay, um, uh, here's a contract, we'll shake on it. You'll say, now, can you please confirm this in an email? I want to see it in writing because today the written word is binding. But in that oral society where they didn't have television, didn't have smartphones, didn't have all the ways in which news and information could immediately be disseminated. The only way was word of mouth. And they were highly skilled in memorizing and recounting their stories. And there were obviously people who had written some stuff down. So the testimony that lies behind the Gospels stretches from the very time of Jesus himself right up to that in that 15-year gap. And anyway, all the New Testament books were written within 100 years. And that to us is, is amazing. Now, why is it outside that people doubt that? Why, why do they say, oh, no, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Gospels. You can't trust that. Why? Well, it's all invented. And all these stories came years later. They did not. Let me tell you about Plato. 
not about him, but let me tell you this fact about him. Plato lived about five centuries before Christ. The earliest written information we have about him and what he said is 1,200 years after his life. And that testimony rests on seven existing manuscripts. Okay? Five century, fifth century BC. 1,200 years later, we get to hear about it, or that's what the testimony that survives today. And those books, information about him, rests on seven manuscripts. The New Testament, everything was done and dusted within 100 years, and much of this stuff much earlier. And the testimony we have as to what the New Testament exists of stretches in Greek alone to over 5,600 manuscripts. So the historical evidence for Jesus... And what he said is thousands of times stronger than Plato. And yet Plato is written up in all the philosophy courses. And everybody talks about him as if he really exists. And what he said we have an accurate record of. But when it comes to Jesus, oh no. Could it be that Jesus is more challenging? Could it be that there's a spirit at work here? That there's a resistance to the truth? So I encourage you today to discover afresh. Now... You don't have to become a university student. If you did, you'd get a free lunch, as you know, here today. But you don't have to become a university student if that's not your thing. You don't have to have to study at that level. All you really need to do to begin with, depending on where you're at, is to get a good study Bible. A good study Bible, when you read it through, will give you some historical references. And that's very, very useful. I've started to read the Bible this time now in historical order, just to reinforce this, this kind of teaching and understanding. And you'll get the background, you'll get the Roman background, you'll get the Jewish background, you'll get what the Jews believed at the time, you'll get the historical periods leading up to the coming of Jesus. You'll get all that kind of stuff. Not that you have to become, you know, what shall I say, an A-level kind of person in order to be, to be a Christian. All you need to do is to meet with Jesus. But when you meet with Jesus, you need to know that the Jesus you meet with is the real Jesus, the Jesus presented in history, the Jesus presented in the Gospels. So I encourage you to do that for lots and lots of reasons for your own strength, for your own faith, so that you can rediscover him in all his power, in all his authority, and you won't have a kind of faith that is over-spiritualized, that does not affect you outside of the church building. Now, I'm really exaggerating, but there is a tendency for people to say, yes, Jesus, no Jesus, three bags full Jesus, and out there, Monday morning, it's every man for himself. But if we, if we are going to become even more authentic as believers who already are, we're going to be equipping ourselves to give an answer of the, for the reason of the hope that is within us and for our own faith, for our own strength to come back and say, why am I a Christian? Is it because I had an experience? Good testimony. Good testimony. But I've spoken to people from different religions. They've had an experience too. Somebody who came to believe in the uh, Islamic faith. I said, how did it happen? He said, I was in this situation and something pinched my heart. And the world's in a mess. And there's so much immorality around. And I found in this the answer to the longings of my heart. I thought that could be a Christian talking, but he's talking about Muhammad, not about Jesus. We need more than subjective testimony. Those are vital. Those are important. 
I remember encountering Christ as a very early believer in such a way it was so real that his presence was so real and so localized that I was totally sure, I didn't test it, but totally sure that if I opened my eyes I would have actually seen him. It was so real. So don't discount that stuff. But also know that the Jesus who would reveal himself to you today by the Holy Spirit is the same Jesus that was conceived in the womb of Mary. That the same Jesus who will come to you in your dreams and speak to you and encourage you and give you a sense of his presence is the same Jesus who was crucified on the cross and was raised again from the dead. It actually happened. And it's real. And he is real. Go back to look at Jesus the man and follow the evidence again until you can truly say, in a way deeper than before, my Lord, my God. Moving from Jesus is real to me to knowing that the real Jesus is real to you.